This is Nashville. I'm your host, Nina Cardona, filling in for Khalil Ecolona. Our city's LGBTQ scene has changed a lot over the years, from back in the day when bars like The Jungle and Juanita opened up and the gay and lesbian newspaper first hit the stand, to now, as the state recently considered anti-LGBTQ legislation. Later this hour, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of This is Nashville. It's all about our queer communities then and now. But first, 13 years ago, a pit at the Kingston Fossil Plant suddenly gave way, releasing a billion gallons of toxic sludge across hundreds of acres and choking a nearby river. It was the largest industrial spill in U.S. history, and it happened in our region, east of Nashville, near Knoxville. Cleanup took years. Last week, a federal appellate court struck down a last-ditch appeal by the contractor, Jacobs Engineering, that the Tennessee Valley Authority hired to remove the waste. It's accused of poisoning workers by not protecting them from what's called coal ash. Now, I want to say that we reached out to the Tennessee Valley Authority for comment. A spokesperson told us TVA is not a party to the Jacobs litigation, and they will continue to respect the judicial process. Tennessee Lookout reporter Jamie Satterfield has been following the story for years, and she joins me now to talk about her reporting. Jamie, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. So, Jamie, let's go back to 2008, which is when this all began. I mean, I remember it. The first reaction a lot of us had was just horror at seeing images of homes engulfed in a black ooze. That was the first time most of us had ever heard of coal ash. And we all asked a question at the time that I think is worth revisiting now, especially for the benefit of those who weren't in Tennessee a dozen years ago. What is that sludge? Well, uh, in 2008, uh, if you had asked that question of TVA, they would have told you that it was uh, no more dangerous than dirt, um, that Uh, It was not radioactive, that its primary ingredient was something called silica. What we now know, thanks largely to investigative journalism, is that it is radioactive and it contains 26 dangerous heavy metals and toxins. Um, So when this stuff went into the water and and smothered the land, uh, it, it, it represented a danger to everyone that lived out there to the aquatic life, and certainly to these workers. And to just clarify, this is a byproduct of burning coal to make electricity, and this had happened at a power plant. Um, TVA hired a contractor called Jacobs Engineering to handle the cleanup. That effort lasted for years. I understand you didn't really start looking into this yourself until 2017 in a deep way. And that's when you were seeing a lawyer about something totally unrelated and ended up meeting a woman who was investigating how the workers hired to clean up the mess had been physically affected. What did she show you that day? Well, you know, when I walked up to the law office, she was standing outside. I didn't know her. Um, But the first thing she said to me was, people are dying and you need to do something about it. Uh, She followed me into the office, and ultimately what she and the attorney began showing me were photos of these workers who were up to their eyeballs in this stuff, wearing nothing more than a reflective vest, a hard hat, uh, you know, and T-shirt and jeans. 
Yeah, um, no. And they start. I'm sorry, they started describing the health conditions that these workers were suffering. So none of the protective gear we might imagine, not like a, they weren't in a hazmat suit or anything like that. Well, you know, again, what I now know based on, on my journalism is that in any kind of industrial accident, uh, workers are supposed to be outfitted with complete full uh, protection, respiratory and skin protection until it is determined what's in the substance, how threatening it is, and that sort of thing. Uh, and we now know uh, that from the very beginning, these workers were never provided uh, the required uh, gear. Uh, and then this cleanup went on for years. And so uh, these workers were out there every day being exposed uh, to a substance that emits radiation. And then they were breathing in these radioactive particles. So what did you do from there? Who who did you talk to? Well, you know, I, I asked them to give me a list of workers who did not know each other. I've, I've been a cops reporter for a long time, learned a lot of, uh, from homicide investigators. And you don't want your, your people cooking up stories. So I wanted folks that, you know, it was a large site. At, at the height of the site, there were 900 workers. So I asked them to give me some folks that aren't buddies. Right. And they did. They gave me a list. And. Uh, the first three I called, uh, I was listening for these little tales. When people tell you the same thing, when they use the same language, you know, they're cooking it up. Well, these these first three did not at all. Uh, so I felt comfortable that they were telling me what they believed to be true. It was the fourth call, though, that really got me. Uh, it was a fellow named Craig Wilkinson, who at that time needed a double lung transplant ha after having worked out there Uh and uh, so I called him and uh, told him who I was and that I was looking into it. And he hung up on me. Uh, and I found that so <laughs> strange. Um, but about 20 minutes later, and I, I just I'll never forget this call because he called me back and he said that he had been at the moment that I called about to go out into his shed and kill himself because he did not want his wife to have to endure this anymore. And um, but he said, you know, if you'll truly investigate this and tell our story, I'm going to hang on. Um, and, you know, from that moment forward, I was hooked. I, I had to get to the bottom of this. So you, you have dug deep. You've talked to a lot of people. How would you sum up the human toll of the cleanup effort? What are these people experiencing years after they finished touching that ash? Well, you've got, um, I think the first impact is um, the deaths. So workers that were in positions out there that were more exposed, who were uh, perhaps not always in vehicles, there were flaggers, things like that, that were on the ground all the time. Uh, and this stuff was getting, every time a truck go by, you know, it'd blow into them. Uh, but when uh, uh, when workers began dying, what I what I learned about those families is that these were very traditional families. Many of these women who this is mostly a male workforce. We do have some female workers uh, who have died or are sick, but mostly men. And uh, a lot of these women did not work outside the home. Uh, you know, they they uh, enjoyed providing uh, a home for their for their families, and and so. 
um, and they had uh, these were long term marriages. And and I myself am a widow, so um, when you lose your soulmate, you know that you've known since high school. Uh, and suddenly you're going to have to fend for yourself because these are contract laborers. They really didn't have good benefits and such. And so the first impact was that you had a whole lot of women who were suddenly without any kind of income support. And then, of course, grief of losing uh, this this man that every day they sent off to work, trusting that TVA was keeping him safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these wives uh, develop breast cancer. Uh, and what I now know is is that, uh, you know, these these fellows were not told that this stuff was dangerous. And so they would come home with it all over them and, and the women would take their clothes and launder them. You know, this stuff ended up eating washing machines. Um, but uh, there were so so you have some of the wives that that have suffered some cancers. And then uh, with the workers who have been sick, uh, you know, when you breathe in radiation and and. Uh, it uh, it stays in your body. It does not come out, and and they get increasingly sick. So uh, when uh, a worker would uh, develop some kind of condition, he couldn't work, and there went his benefits, there went his insurance, there went the family's income. Right, right. Um, and uh, I, I have talked to workers. One fellow just broke my heart, man. He's about to lose his house uh, and everything they had. And forgive me when I get emotional, because it's so wrong. Of course. But um, so a, a lot of financial hardship. A lot of these workers, um, when they get sick and they're unable to work, they lose their insurance, so they don't get any kind of medical care. And truly, until I uncovered the ingredient list, the real, true ingredient list, and the levels. Of, of radioactive material, many of these workers really did not understand what it was that was causing their sicknesses. And, and they did not, and still to this day, do not get uh, appropriate medical testing and care. Many of them simply can't afford it. Right. Those who, those who do have insurance have racked up astronomical bills uh, and which, again, is creating financial hardship. And that's why then there is the fight in the courts right now for financial damages. Now, in your mind, what is the significance of last week's ruling? That is denying the contractor Jacobs Engineering from immunity in the, the case where they are suing for damages. Well, it, it certainly now means uh, uh, Jacobs has uh, since since there was a favorable verdict in 2018, for the workers, this is a two-phase process. And so they won that stage. And Jacobs has been appealing issues ever since. Um, and uh, and this was uh, the last sort of ditch effort for them to try to get some way out of this. And uh, Judge Tom Barlin has been presiding over this case since the beginning. Um, and he very wisely allowed them uh, an interim appeal to the Sixth Circuit to ask this final question, and that is about whether TBA would be immune, and if so, would Jacobs be immune? Um, and and so now that the Sixth Circuit has sided with the workers in this and, and determined that neither TBA nor Jacobs can be immune uh, for this behavior that's alleged, um, it, it puts the workers very close now 
to uh, go into trial for damages. Well, now just all that waits is to to see what happens now in courts. Jamie Satterfield has been covering this story for the Tennessee Lookout. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for. All right, I'm going to hand it off to your regular host, Khalil Ecolona, for the rest of the hour. We're bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode we aired in March, all about our LGBTQ scene here in Nashville, then and now. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Welcome back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. The LGBTQ scene in Nashville has changed a lot over the years. We want to go back in time to get to know the scene of yesterday a little better. I'm talking the 50s, when the first official gay bar opened here, to the 60s, when countercultural movements were taking hold across the country, into the 80s, when we got our first gay and lesbian newspaper here in Tennessee. Here with us to take a look back is Jeff Ellis, the founder of that newspaper. Jeff, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So in 1988, you and your late partner, Stuart Bevan, started Query, a weekly newspaper dedicated to the gay and lesbian community. Tell me, how did you and Stuart meet? (laughs) Well, we were at a fundraiser for the national contingent to the 1987 March on Washington for gay and lesbian rights. And uh, I saw this guy standing near me and I thought, you know, I think I want to meet him. So I was trying to um, gin up the courage to do so when a drunk walked by, bumped into a woman who had been talking to Stuart and knocked her to my feet. I helped her up said, can I buy you a drink? And she said, sure, you should meet my friend, Stuart. (laughs) And she introduced us. And uh, the rest is history, I guess. That's what I like to call a happy accident right there. Um, That's fantastic. So tell me, what inspired you both to start this paper? Well, Stuart had been a law student at Vanderbilt at a time when there were several homophobic incidents happening on campus. And he spoke out about it. Uh, There had been some uh, articles written in the Vanderbilt Hustler uh, that were um, rather offensive. And he realized then the need for um, objective journalistic coverage for our community. And so after he graduated, he really uh, didn't want to uh, practice law. And I had a background in journalism, and we decided to start um, a gay newspaper. We called it D.A.R.E. after um, the famous um, uh, Lord Alfred Douglas letter to uh, Oscar Wilde about the love that dare not speak its name. So uh, we decided to start a newspaper, and it was that simple, quite frankly. And we set about... um, talking to potential advertisers and set about deciding what our coverage could actually be. And um, we got our first issue ready. It was published by a local printer here in Nashville. And um, 
later that day, after they had delivered our papers to us, they told us they could no longer print our paper because it was a gay and lesbian newspaper. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so that set us on a, um, a quest to find someone who would print us. And uh, luckily, my mentor from MTSU, Dorothy Harrison, who was at the time uh, PR director at MTSU, suggested we contact um, the people at the Lebanon Democrat. And so we did. And they welcomed us with open arms. And the fact that that happened was good for us because it became a new story for uh, the local mainstream press. And as a result, people were talking about us. And that put us in the hands of a lot more people than we could have initially hoped for. Okay. I'd like to bring in my next guest. Dr. Marissa Richmond is a historian at Middle Tennessee State University. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jeff was just telling us about how they started this paper in the 80s, but our queer community's history goes back much, much further than that. Help us understand Nashville's LGBTQ scene and how it's grown over the years. Well, coming out of World War II, there were a lot of people uh, despite the, the president's executive order uh, to ban uh, uh, gay people in the, serving in the military. The fact is, gay people served in the military. Uh, people stepped up to the call uh, to serve the country uh, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Um, many, of course, did not come back, but uh, they were serving in same-sex units. Uh, many who served, um, particularly in continental Europe and in London and, and in Paris after the liberation, uh, gained a new sense of community and a new sense of identity. And when they came home, they started opening nightclubs and, uh, and creating newspapers and political organizations. Um, and so there was this explosion all over the country and Nashville was not alone. And uh, we start to see uh, some nightclubs open up. Uh, and you mentioned in the introduction, the jungle in Juanitas, they were in downtown Nashville, uh, directly across the street from the bus station, which made it easy for people who wanted to come into Nashville to get off the bus and walk across the street and go someplace and have a drink and and meet people and uh, and start to socialize. And similar uh, things were happening in cities all over the country. Now, you're talking about how people formed community back then. And I'm gonna ask you, as a black trans woman, What's, what was your experience in finding community like? Um, well, of course, uh, for you know, in the pre-internet days, there were very few uh, options in finding information. And um, uh, of course, I had moved away. I was actually living in Washington, D.C. But, um, but when I was coming back home to visit my family, um, you know, I, I don't remember where I first saw it. I remember D.A.R.E. even before they changed the name to Query. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, learning of resources, uh, finding out, you know, sometimes just through word of mouth about the, the clubs that were out there and just a uh, little, you know, taking, you know, baby steps, a uh, little bit at a time, trying to figure out where you could go, what was safe, where you were, you know, what was acceptable. And, um, uh, of course things really started to explode in the nineties with the, with the, the world, the web, um, and, uh, uh, and resources uh, becoming more readily available thanks to the internet um, and and people searching out literally around the world 
I remember we got a, an email from someone in Poland <laughs> trying to find resources there. Hmm. And this was shortly after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism. And the closest thing we could find for them was Berlin. But the reality is that people everywhere were looking for resources and, and one way or another starting to find them. If you're just joining us, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with members of the LGBTQ community about its history here in Music City. I want to welcome my next guest, counselor and human rights activist, Phil Michael Thomas. Phil, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Phil, tell me a little bit about what it was like being out as a gay black man back in the day. Well, actually, I used to say, because uh, we I used to go around with other people and we would do panel discussions and just information, whatever. And I used to I always wanted to be the last one to speak because I would. And when I spoke, I always said, I actually don't exist. Hmm. And the people look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, first of all, I'm a black gay male. And especially at that time, no one, in the, even in the black community and gay, would even come out and step forward to admit publicly that they were gay. Uh, a lot of organization I was part of at that time, it was easy to find me because I was only black face up in there. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, you and Jeff know each other, right? Yes. How far back do you guys go? Um, oh, right. <laughs> oh, yes. A long way. <laughs> a long, long way. You guys are keeping it short and sweet like you got some stories that can't be told on radio. Well, no. In fact, I think that I was probably on a panel with uh, Phil when he made that declaration. Uh, I have um, a memory of being on a panel at Vanderbilt, in fact. And uh, that's all I'm going to say right now. Okay. Okay. That's wonderful. <laughs> okay. So I want to ask all of you this question. I'm interested in getting thoughts from all three of you about how you see, you know, the scene in back in the day, like describe some of the places you all went to. For me, it was, now I remember going actually down to the, the jungle uh, one time and I didn't stay because at that time I was kind of young, like I better get out of here because I wouldn't because I was, it was fearful, but Real nice people. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Um, but I, but there's also other, uh, other bars on the time, the other side. Uh, before my time was also a bar downtown called Watch Your Head, Watch Your Head and Coat and the old saloon that even predates those uh, bars. But still, when I started going out, I noticed that I still did not see a lot of people that look like me for the most part. And when I started to become real active, Still know people like that, but I still that was not uh, something that deterred me to go back in because I never knew what a closet was. Mm -hmm. The way I was brought up by my grandparents, you know, if you believe in something, then you do it. You don't hide behind anything if you believe something is uh, is right for you. That's not living your truth. I, I understand that. I respect that. Jeff, tell me about the places you all used to hit up. Well, you know. At the time, you went to bars primarily. So there's the warehouse and the cabaret and the shoot complex and the world's end. And then there's also uh, Metropolitan Community Church was an early um, uh, force in the community, I think, for bringing people together. And um, for Stuart and I, it was the... Uh, uh, planning of the uh, March on Washington in 1987 that 
brought us together. And that seemed to precipitate um, political action in Nashville and uh, um, a, more of a political organization, if you will, that uh, focused on uh, our civil rights more so than our social lives. Marissa, where did you all go for a good time? Well, um, uh, my main hangout was the jungle, although it had moved over to 4th Avenue South at that time. But, uh, but Jeff actually mentioned every single one of the bars Jeff mentioned. I went to um, the cabaret. I think I went actually there before I ever heard of the jungle. Um, there was the other side. Actually, I remember going there uh, back in the mid-70s. It was the first time I ever saw a drag show. Um, and then uh, the warehouse, the shoot, um, you know, so uh, all of those places. Uh, but but the jungle was my main hangout for a long time. I'm getting a sense of these places, but what did they feel like? <laughs> well, Phil Michael was just saying that the jungle was uh, whatever word you just use. I always described it. It, it kind of grows on you like fungus. Um, <laughs> it was not fancy, um, but it was home. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's where where we hung out. Okay. I think it's funny that you said it was home because I was going to say that when, when you're gay and you haven't been out among a big group of gay people, when you go into a gay bar, gay bar, it is like you're going home. And I remember the first gay bar I ever went to was the warehouse. And I walked in and I was really nervous and hesitant about going in and uh, two straight friends from college were with me and they were the ones who were pushing me to go in and um, we got there and immediately you just felt like you're at home and you didn't have to pretend to be anything other than who you were you know speaking of that let's take a quick trip out east to Lipstick Lounge. It's become somewhat of a Nashville institution over the past few decades. Our producer Rose Gilbert takes us there It's a Friday night, and the small purple bar on the corner of Woodland Street and 14th is packed. Drag queens decked out in heels and glitter mill around in the crowd waiting to perform. Karaoke is already going strong. I think it's a pretty good vibe. I love the vibe. I love the people. I made a lot of good friends. I feel safe. I'm like with my people. Strong drinks. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. It's an awesome place just to be gay, you know, do karaoke and have fun. Yeah. Tonight, the main draw is a drag show. Ms. Kennedy Ann Scott is one of Lipstick Lounge's resident queens. She's been performing here for almost a decade. It is a neighborhood bar with a lot of flair. We are a bar for humans. We love everybody. We take anybody in. This is church for some people. That's right. She said church. This is a safe haven for some people. This is a fun bar, a good time, and you're never going to meet a stranger here. Here, church is singing a duet with a stranger. It's sharing a lighter and a round of drinks on the patio. At this church, you worship at the altar of queens like Kennedy Ann as they dance their hearts out. And the bar's founder? She knows all about worship. I'm very spiritual. Truly believe in God. John DeValentine grew up the daughter of a West Virginia preacher. She was just 20 years old when she moved to Nashville in the 80s with her husband and son. After a while, they divorced, and John has spent a few years touring as a backup singer for country star Ronnie Millsap. Between traveling so much and coming to terms with her sexuality, she worried about losing custody. You could lose your kids at that, in that period of time, especially in the South. 
Back then, it wasn't cool to be gay. So, feeling a little lost, she came back home to Nashville and prayed to God for an answer. Soon, a little voice appeared in the back of her mind. Open a bar, open a bar, open a bar. I thought, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, then you show me a sign. And then it came to her in the dead of night, a passage from her grandmother's King James Bible ringing in her mind loud and clear. Thou shalt rise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of past to dwell in. That section right there is what meant so much to me because bringing people together is what it's all about. Years later, you can find that very passage printed on the signature purple wall over the DJ booth. It's a reminder of how Lipstick Lounge came to be and why. To repair the breach. To restore the paths. Now, John admits, getting started was not easy. We didn't know how to mix drinks. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. At one point, she got so frazzled trying to keep up with drink orders that she actually forgot to ask her customers to pay. So yeah, it was kind of comical. But they made it through, and that's thanks in large part to her best friend and co-owner, Krista Supan. Our DJ booth used to actually be right here. <laughs> that was it. Um, and then the bar was right here. One of the first things Krista did was redesign the bar to fit her and Jonda's exact needs. The guys that were here, I was like, Jonda, come here and stand next to me. So we stood side by side. And I was like, however wide our butts are together, that's how wide I want it to be. So they actually, that's exactly the size it is. They quickly found their groove. Over the years, the bar became a reliable destination for a good time. But without fail, it was also a spot where the community pulled together during hard times. After the Orlando Pulse shooting, they raised over $10,000 in just one night. We want to do something to make this world just a little bit better. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing anyway. Have you made it just a little bit better? Even if it's just the one person, have you, have you left it? Have you left the jersey better than you found it? That's exactly what Krista hopes Lipstick Lounge does for its community. Having that sort of like, you know, rainbow flag flying place that you know you can go to find other people in your community is invaluable. Julie Edwards has been something of a regular since she moved to Nashville just over three years ago. Yeah, like having that ability to be like, okay, I'm feeling really alone and I just need to be supported by com my community or I need to meet other people who are like me. And having a space that you know you can go, even if you don't know anybody, and meet people who understand your experience. Not feeling alone, even in a bar full of strangers. After 19 years in business, that's what makes Lipstick Lounge so special. I can honestly say that I feel like I have done more of God's work spreading love and helping people than I ever did in church. Of the valley, my bright and morning star, I don't care what people say. I'm going down on my knees today, and I'm going to wait, wait right here until he comes. <laughs> Thanks to our producer, Rose Gilbert, for taking us to Lipstick Lounge. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to learn more about today's queer scene. Don't go away. This is Nashville.
Welcome back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about our city's LGBTQ scene back in the day. After that quick trip to the past, it's only fitting to talk about where the scene is today. Now I'd like to introduce my next guests. Bean No, Desiree Arista, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to be here. Desiree, I'd like to start with you. You were born and raised here. Tell me about your experience growing up. Yeah, uh, a native um, and have lived here off and on throughout the decades. Um, But when I came out, I came out right after my high school graduation back in 2001 uh, and made my way to places like The Connection, The Shoot, um, as well as The Cabaret Episode 2. Um, and then shortly thereafter, while I was in college, um, places like the Lipstick Lounge, Play, and Tribe opened up, which really um, o- opened its way for just more community building through the years. Bean, I'm curious about how your experience compares. You came to Nashville later, but you grew up in rural Vietnam. What was your experience like, my friend? Growing up in a very south of Vietnam, uh, and it it in a very poor countryside of Vietnam. Uh, at that time, I still don't have a lot of information about the LGBTQ. And seem like the pressure uh, come from the neighbor. Like people usually uh, talk about talk about you to your parents. So um, I see not many of my friends coming out, even though that I know that I'm different because I'm from a, from a middle from the middle school, um, instead of playing sport with, you know, all the uh, boy, I seem like I like to play uh, baby doll with all the girl in class. And come from a, a very poor uh, countryside. At that time, we don't even have like you know like a real baby doll. Sometimes we use the water bottle and we use you know we use clothes and make up a baby doll and play. And um, it it pretty conservative. People still not very open <clears throat> back then, like ten years ago. Now Vietnam, I think, become much better because a lot of singer and famous actor they coming out and they share their story. So now the neighbor and you know the people in general become supporting it. So every time like a parent have a children that coming out, seems like the the neighbor cheer them up and want them to support their their children. Like it's completely different picture now. So what is that like? I mean, you grew up, like you said, without a lot of representation, but now you're surrounded by queer community. How does that feel? Oh, it is just like a wonderful feeling to be able to be yourself and that and knowing out there are some people that they they people out there, many people out there that understand you. Because at that time in Vietnam I don't even know what the gay mean, you know, what the uh, the LGBT definition. But when I first come here, I have to be honest, in the, um, 2011, when I'm 14 and a half, I come to the U.S. And I go to a uh, um, Christian school in Lebanon. They call Friendship Christian School in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, I have to be honest, at that time, it's still not very open, especially in Lebanon. I know Nashville is a big, uh, is a big difference. But... Um, but I'm very. I have to be honest. I'm very lucky that I still receive the the love and the care from the uh, from my friend and from the uh, teacher at at uh, Friendship Christian. I I think that um, even though they cannot like su- 
supporting you um, openly supporting you but they they inside they are hurt they love you and um, and they also try to supporting you in other way and I feel very very lucky to uh, to have that Now you were both listening and we heard some great stories in our last segment and I'm curious Desiree what role do elders in the community play for you Uh they they play a huge role you know they're they're the reason I have been able to become the person and 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 thrive in in a, a growing LGBTQ scene um I remember you know when I first came out there were a group of women that I had met um who t- who had taken me in essentially and invited me um to spend time with them they would have house uh, concert it was called the purple house uh, concert and it was from there that I was able to be more exposed to what was going on um because back then you know we had the beginning of the internet but it wasn't uh the social network that it is today so we had sites like gay.com planetout.com as the main outlets for finding community as well as the AOL chat rooms um but there was places like the outloud bookstore um and the gay and lesbian center there that was uh that's where canvas is located today um those were you know one of the few outlets for actually learning more about um our history um so i'm very grateful for the folks that had appeared in my life those women ann and bev and lawana who really uh gave me an understanding uh and an education in you know what it is to be um a queer person in asheville Phil Michael Thomas is still with us. Phil, how do you feel about this moment in time for our queer community? Well, I um by the way, I I know what you're talking about about the Purple House. Had some wonderful concerts there. As <laughs> far as today, I'm glad to see the youth that's feeling comfortable to be who they are without doubt, without fear. And I feel that that older elders did make that path. Uh, I do feel that uh, we've kind of been the foundation for them to stand on so they can continue to live their truth. In many ways, Nashville has gotten a lot more accepting in recent years, but there's also been kind of a backlash in our state legislature. Desiree, as a Nashville native, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 at times it definitely feels like, you know, are we taking a step back? but when you really think about it it's kind of cyclical you know depending on what's happening politically and you know who's in office you'll find that you'll like in the early 90s when bill clinton was president there was a sense of you know freedom uh of expression in the what they call the gay 90s um but then once the bush administration took hold in 2002 it kind of felt like we were dealing with more of a a closed circuit and we had to really you know hunker down and take care of one another in community um so it's it's it does feel a little bit like why are we having to continue fighting these same fights um in hopes of one day that we won't have to really defend who we are and who we love we can just be phil what's it like for you to see this developing in our legislature It's it's uh saddening it feels like we are going backwards. I mean not even back to the 60s or 70s. I feel like we're going back centuries. And it's out of hatred. It's not out of love. It's it's not out of Christian faith now that you can we have wonderful places like Edge Hill was the first congregation to uh, uh, allowed gays in there. But yet we are going back and we're using Christianity as the way that's a crutch to say 
we don't like gays and lesbians and trans and all that, too, which is a lie. What is something about the LGBTQ community in Nashville that brings you hope and joy? Bean, I'd like for you to answer first. I think that um, I feel like the loving and the caring uh, that people giving us that, you know, I the support thing that that make us feel safe, make us feel like we are uh, welcome here. When I go to um, Cumberland University, uh, uh, you know, we have, uh, I'm very lucky to have a director, uh, the student uh, success and student life director that um, give me the opportunity to um, to bring back the one of the organization that have been uh, failed out because some of the students have graduated. They call Prior Life and we gather together and, um, you know, create a, um, a supporting group that for and we create a lot of event that in helping other students to feel welcome when they come to the school and they also um, uh, you know we create a lot of um, uh, event to uh, for example the one about people uh, get shooting in Orlando we also create a candlelight vivid for them to in mem- in memory of that so I think um some of that happening a lot, not just for me, but I also want to see other people feeling they they welcome to be on campus, and and they um they feel like they belong there, and lucky for me that when I uh, start apply for the job, and I'm uh, the company that I'm working for now, uh, they call PSB CPA uh, in Franklin, Tennessee. They also um, they help you out. Yes, very diverse and inclusive policy to, to help the staff. and That's um, fantastic. Yes. That's fantastic. Real quick, Desiree, I'd like for you to answer to what about the community? What brings you hope and joy? What brings me hope and joy is being able to just see more queer, queer people out and about in the community, being themselves, being open, holding hands, um, and that there are still spaces, you know, even though the brick and mortar um clubs and bars that we used to frequent um, for a sense of community because we had to, you know, I guess, hide, essentially. Uh, I am grateful for um, events and the folks that put together QDP, the Queer Dance Party, the monthly parties. I I appreciate that, especially the fact that those were events that brought together multiple generations under one roof, um, you know, getting their groove on, essentially. Um because no matter what, our, our our community always appreciates that opportunity to let our hair down and dance and be free. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. I want to give thanks to Bino, Desiree Arista, and Philip Michael Thomas. Okay, it's the end of the week, so I'm going to hop out of my host chair and into the passenger seat. Each Friday, you can join me as I ride shotgun with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. Today, I am taking a trip with Ben Slinkert, a.k.a. Kennedy Ann Scott, as she heads to the Lipstick Lounge for her trivia drag show. Check it out. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Awesome. My name is Ben Slinkert, um, also known as Kennedy Ann Scott. (laughs) Nice to meet you, Ben. Nice to meet you. Slash Kennedy. Yes. How long have you lived here in Nashville? 11 years. So, a moment. A little bit. You've seen Nashville change. <laughs> I have. From whenever there was not so many people to when the big boom 
came. Mm-hmm. So, kind of right before the big boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to give you props on deftly navigating that little bit of traffic we saw on the freeway <laughs> right there. I thought we were going to get stuck for a few minutes. No. You have lived here for a while. You know these streets, huh? I do, I do. Um, and I, so like one of my favorite things to do is like when I'm a little stressed out or when I'm really feeling down, I love to go on drives um, and just blare my music and just listen. So like, I've always been better at directions where landmarks, uh-huh. <laughs> so I can tell you how to get somewhere, but I don't always know the street names, but I'm like, oh, it's over here by the church and the third left. Like Those landmarks are changing. They are, for sure. So it, I guess I'll have to start getting lost again. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to show you where I live because yeah. we were talking about it. So this is the historic Buena Vista neighborhood, and I live right down here. I'm right here on the corner. Nice. Um, I know, I love my little community and... Neighbors are nice? Neighbors are amazing. We uh, we have like little block parties back in our parking lot back here. Okay. Um, and really getting to know all different types of walks of life. Let's go back to when you first got here. Okay. What was Nashville like? I felt like Nashville when I first got here was also growing up and coming into its own. It was kind of cool to see a city kind of grow with me as I was going through things and growing and changing and becoming more of myself. When I first came out, a lot of people were like, oh, that's my gay friend, Ben. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I was just Ben. Yeah, I came out as gay, but I've always been me. I think just in general in society, people see the gay and then the person. Then the person, or like people see the skin color. Exactly. And then they see the person, if they get a chance to see that. Yeah. People are like, this is my gay friend, Ben. Like automatically you're supposed to style somebody's (laughs) clothes or hair or break into a show tune song and dance number. Yes, or will you go shopping with me? Uh Uh-huh. I'm not an accessory. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm not an accessory, I'm a person. How did you get into drag? I was a senior in high school and a couple of my girlfriends were like, oh, we want to dress you up for fun. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever. And they're like, really? And I was like, yeah, but I wasn't out at that time. Okay. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? When you saw yourself for the first time, oh gosh, how did you feel? (laughs) I felt amazing. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, look out world. You know, I think all drag queens go through that stage where they're just really full of themselves. Like, I could take on the world, I'm the hottest thing. You know, all all baby queens go through that. But then you know in deep inside yourself, it's like a part of you and you're like, this is amazing. I think sometimes being feminine is seen as a bad thing, even for dads to say that, you know, they love their gay son. That's I think sometimes that's even really hard because we can't believe that a masked man can love his feminine gay child you know men in this country are really deceived constantly it's not about being mask or femme or anything it's about being you boys always have to live up to a certain standard and i think we really like we really mess with our society with that because i feel like the best men are in touch with both sides whenever I'm on stage, I have to kind of get a feel for who is at my show. So before my show even starts, I go and I talk to people. And I just like make jokes, walk around, be sassy, really like kind of see where my audience is. But yeah, like I, there are certain things that I'm like, let's just enjoy ourselves. (laughs) 
Miss Kennedy Ann Scott, how is it going? Hello, it's going wonderful. Getting ready for our big O show and game show. Yes, it's going to be a good time. Oh, it better be. And your outfit is rocking. You definitely went very, very 80s, like you Thank said. Thank you. This big uh, hair. Big hair, big brunette hair, <laughs> Rolling Stones sequence yes. shirt. Always got to have a little sequin. It looks nice. How does the um, trivia game work out? So it's called Figure It Out. So okay. it's like a clue-based trivia game. So there's six rounds. All right, so we have several teams playing tonight, and you're playing for first place gets a $50 gift card to lipstick. <laughs> and the losing team tonight gets a pack of Hall's cough drops already open. <laughs> Yes. That booty is on fire. Honey, this booty is something tonight. Honey. Woo! God. We have Queerly Beloved. Woo! We have the Lone Stranger. There he is back in the back. We have Too Drunk to Know Things. And we have That's the Raven's First Time. Thanks to everyone who joined us for this rebroadcast of This Is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for your host, Khalil Ecolona. I'll be back with you tomorrow for a brand new episode. In the wake of the racist mass shooting in Buffalo, we'll explore the link between hateful rhetoric from our leaders and ongoing acts of violence. Tune in. This Is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.